always hear that, you know, people describing what a tornado sounds like, but it did. It sounded like the rumble of a train and just like, just loud. And then all of a sudden it was just crashing glass and explosion is what I can describe it as. And basically we went up in the tornado. My memory is like it happened yesterday. It's vivid. Being sucked up in a tornado with your family sounds like a horror movie or a nightmare to most of us. However, this was my guest today, Randy McCullough's reality when he was just 11 years old. Randy, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Right. The pleasure is all mine. What a story you have. Where do we even start? I suppose the most logical place to start is what what do you remember at 11 years old from this insane day? Actually, yesterday marked the 45th anniversary. So yesterday, 45 years ago, I was in that tornado, and my memory is like it happened yesterday. I mean, really? I can remember things just, it's vivid. I mean, hmm. I just can remember just the smell in the air, just exactly what we were doing just a lot of yeah i don't know memory of that I guess. right well i guess that's what they say about traumatic events so a traumatic event technically speaking is an event that happens and it overrides your ability to cope with it it's so much information such new information such a novel experience that you don't even know what to do with it. Mm, and so certainly. it kind of ingrains itself in your brain. It says, well, yeah. if you don't know what to do here, let's remember this forever so we can maybe look back on this for future uh, information or future decision-making purposes. <laughs> so he's so, done that, right? evidently. So what were you doing that day then, and who was there with you? Well, my family was there. It was my dad my older sister, Jill. Um, she's four years older than I am. And then my younger sister, Joni, she is, I think, 18 months younger than I am. Pretty close. And uh, my mom. And we were just down at our lake home in Mattoon, Neoga. Uh, it's just a small lake. But we went down there on weekends, every weekend, and skied and stayed in our swimming suit from the time we got up until we went to bed sometimes we didn't even take it off we just <laughs> stayed in it all night and we took baths in the lake and uh, i was skiing on one ski when i was nine years old and just that was just a still they're just the best memories of my life right so this was a very happy place oh extremely Huh. Loved being down there. My cousins were down there, and just it was a good way to spend the weekend. It was just, I didn't know life any other way. It was just awesome. Have you ever been back there since yes. this day in 1977? Yeah, several times. Actually, my sister Joni and, and Jill, they bought a place down there, and they currently own a place down there. So Well, that's pretty impressive that you can return to the scene of the of this horrific event, really. It shows that psychologically, I don't know if you're over it. I guess we'll we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but just the fact that you can return there means that it's not so frightening that it's a it's walled off to you. I Have remember you... going back there, um, 
this happened August 21st, 1977, and I can remember going back, like, in the fall sometime, you know, September, October, I don't know, with some friends and other family members just to look over the debris that was left from the tornado. And, you know, I had Hot Wheels cars and, and you know, toys, uh, things, personal belongings of my families that were just scattered all over. And we just look for what we could find and dig it up out of the dirt and clean it up and take it home if I wanted to. A lot of it we just threw away, but... How long after the tornado did you do this? Months. Months, and there was still all that stuff? Mm Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah, it was just debris everywhere because there was nothing left. It was just a foundation that was left. Um, It was a trailer, like a double-wide trailer, uh, like you see in a uh, trailer park, you know, and we had a big addition built onto it with, uh, just place where we could just get together and eat like a big, it was actually a picnic table that was inside, but, um, we had bunk beds. They were queen size beds, but they were three high so that we could, you know, have families down and other kids. There'd be sometimes five kids in a bed, you know, but mm-hmm. it was just fun. Now, for people that watch the show regularly, there's a good chance that a lot of them have seen my episode with your sister, Jill McCullough, now Jill Doran. Mm -hmm. And she is paralyzed from the waist down from this event. You, however, did say before we started recording, you think you might remember it better, despite being a little younger. (laughs) Do you stand by that? Do you think that's the case? Well, I just, my memory is just so, I just can remember everything that happened that day. Other than when I landed, that's when I was knocked out. But, you know, just came out of nowhere. I was out skiing. It was noon, around noon on a Sunday. And I was out skiing. It was beautiful. It was like glass. The water was so smooth. So that's why I chose to go out skiing. And it was just beautiful. And then all of a sudden, it started getting kind of stormy looking, dark. So we pulled our boat in and got on the boat lift and lifted it up. And, you know, it started getting darker and darker and green and almost black. You know, we were putting away uh, inner tubes and lawn chairs and uh, rafts, uh, securing everything because it was starting to get windy and the you could tell it was going to storm. It was just getting pretty nasty. And uh, we went in the addition where uh, we just hung out as a family. And then the women, uh, my mom and my aunt and another aunt, went into the kitchen. And they were making lunch, some sandwiches for us to eat. And we're just sitting around looking outside the windows. Our addition had windows, you know, surrounding it pretty much. And so you could see everything that was going on. There were just big windows. and We're just looking outside, and, you know, we didn't have a TV. Or maybe we had a TV, but we didn't have any kind of cable, or there was no such right, thing as direct TV. It's 1977 in a campground. Yeah, yeah, it was just, there was nothing. But we did have radio, and 
turned on the radio and I can remember hearing, you know, in between the thunder and stuff, just uh, like an alert, you know, kind of, there's been a tornado spotted. That's what I heard. There's been a tornado spotted. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I looked outside and there was a tree that was, I couldn't even get my arms around it today. And that thing was just bent over. I mean, touching the water. I mean, you could tell that it was, I've never seen a storm like that, you know. And it was dark as night. Street lights were coming on. I mean, it was dark. And all of a sudden, after it said there'd been a tornado spotted, just all of a sudden, it was just like a torn or a like a train. You always hear that, you know, people describing what a tornado sounds like, but it did. It sounded like the rumble of a train and just like just loud. And then all of a sudden, it was just crashing glass and explosion, is what I can describe it as. And basically, we went up in the tornado. And the lake is small. It's maybe a little bit bigger than Lake Bloomington, but smaller than Lake Clinton. And it took us over the lake. So I would say probably a mile to a mile and a half. And then it turned and changed directions and brought us back to where we were. Um, Probably within... Uh, 50 yards 100 yards of where we started we went up over the lake changed directions brought us back so I mean I can remember seeing the water separate looking you know just things not like Wizard of Oz where you're flying through the air in a house or something it's just debris flying everywhere people things gas cans um inner tubes, um, dirt. I could smell dirt and just the water. I could feel the water from whether it's the rain or from the lake being sucked up, you know, but I could feel it. Um, The lake is not a real deep lake. It's really shallow. I mean, there's spots in the lake where you can just walk across it. So, I mean, even at 11 years old, I could walk across our cove. So to see the water separate really isn't that big of a deal because it's like four foot of water. But Wow. That is astonishing. First of all, tell me, how high up would you guess you were sucked up in this tornado? Is it 20 feet or is it more? I really don't have a clue, you know. Um, I'd say more than 20. I just can remember things flying through the air. I couldn't tell. I couldn't see like a horizon, anything like that. All I could see was just dark, you know, things flying through the air. Oh, so it wasn't, I guess I was picturing it wrong. So you saw things flying in the air. You knew you were in the air, but it wasn't you didn't have clear vision of the ground, say. Right. Or faraway objects. Right. It was it's not dark. like I was in an air balloon or something like that, <laughs> flying through the air, you know. I, guess I mean, that's it was what just I was like, I, I just really feel like we were in the tornado, like going around in the cyclone, you know, up and over and then turn back. 
could be wrong. I'm 11 years old, you know? That's what it that's what my experience is. I feel like we actually went up in it and went over the lake, came back, and I was awake during everything until we landed. When we landed, I hit the ground and it just felt like I was buried alive. I mean, it felt like the ground was soft, you know, and it just felt like I hit the ground and all the dirt just went right over top of me, just like I sunk six feet in, you know. And then I came to and looked around and I could just see like my Uncle Bob was running around and jumping over down power lines and um, looking for people, basically. And I just said, Uncle Bob, what's going on? Is this, am I having a dream? That's what I said. I just, I thought it was a dream. I thought it was just a bad dream. It didn't feel real because going through something like that, you just, it's not something you experience every day, I guess. So I just felt like it was a dream. And just seeing him running around, he just said, his exact words was, a cyclone hit. A cyclone hit. And I'm like, what the hell is a cyclone, you know? <laughs> but it was a tornado, and um, I could see, you know, bodies, things scattered. I don't know. What did you think when you saw bodies? Were they alive or did some, you see some lifeless bodies some were alive um right next to me was my sister jill um uh, my uncle just said if you can get up go over by this building there was a brick building that was owned by um a guy that really never came down to the lake it was just a nice brick ranch house and it was standing our places were gone, but that place was standing. There was some roof damage to that place, but nothing major. So we went over to this house, and um, we just leaned up against the wall, sat down against the wall because it was still raining, my sister Joni and I. And at that time, Joni was able to walk. She had some cuts, but um, her... She was kind of like this. She had broken a collarbone. Um, that was all I could see that was really wrong with her, but I had broke both my arms, both bones in my left arm. So my radial and my ulna were broken. Clean Do you breaks. have any scars or anything from that still? No, it was just clean break. Um, it was... Actually, I can remember once I did arrive at the hospital, um, you know, they gave me drugs, you know, just to kind of calm me down and stuff because, you know, I'm by myself. I'm 11 years old. I don't know where anybody is. I'm at this hospital. And uh, they just said, is your mom, dad here? I'm like, I don't know. And they just said that they might have to amputate my arm just because both bones were broke, and there was a cut, and they just said they didn't know if they could save it. So my aunt, Betty, actually was there, and she said it was okay to do surgery. So, But 
my left arm is fine today. She said it was okay to do... Just surgery surgery to, you know, have it set, you know. Oh, not surgery to amputate. Yeah, right, right. I give you the okay. Never forgive your aunt for that, but... But, yeah, both arms were broke, so I had casts on both my arms and... um, but getting up, I guess, you know, and finding Jill laying there, and she just said, I can't feel my legs, Randy. I can't feel my legs. Don't don't touch me, you know. Um, so I left her sit there, you know. I'm, what could you do? Because I couldn't do anything. My arm was dangling. Holy smokes, man. I mean, At 11, was... and your sister's 15 laying there saying she... This had to feel worse than a bad dream. It just this... was like a big lump on my arm. It just was really swollen already, and this my hand was just dangling. I couldn't support it because both bones were broke in that, you know, left arm. Um, it was very painful, extremely painful. And I looked around and, you know, saw Joni, and she was able to get up and— uh, I looked to my right, and I saw my dad, and my dad was, um, he had broken his nose several times playing basketball and football, and he always had a crooked nose and a big nose like me, but um, he was breathing real hard. He was not awake. He was just gurgling, is how I would describe it. His glasses weren't on, and he always wore glasses, and he was blue. I mean, he just looked like a bright blue red color purple almost you know just gurgling i thought he was dead or soon to be dead for sure um but that is it for my direct family my cousin neil um he was with Joni and i and we went over by a building and there were some other people that were injured that were over there too and a lot of head wounds and a lot of blood it's kind of freaking me out, you know, at 11 years old. I'm just thinking, what in the heck? Is this real? You know, I'm still, you know, thinking, is this real? Being up and being by a building and thinking, this can't be real. And then um, – Sorry. Oh. You kidding me? Take your time, man. This is the most incredible story I've ever heard. I can't believe you're even able to tell it. And there's more to it. There's more to it for anyone watching. Believe it or not, I mean, <clears throat> there was more to your immediate family that yeah, went on. And would you care to share that part? Yeah, I just uh, looked over, you know, as we were over by this building, I could just see you know, people coming, you know, like in pickup trucks and just trying to help, you know, there wasn't advance warning, you know, there was things scattered all over the road, you couldn't get there, you know, it was just chaos and still raining and thundering and and I'm looking and all these people trying to help people and I could see a group of people that were maybe... 20 yards from where we were and they were just taking like sheets white sheets and putting it over 
bodies is what I'm thinking it was. I mean, I never got the confirmation that that's what it was, but it's what I thought. I didn't see my mom. I didn't see her. You know, none of us saw her. We just went over by this building and waited till somebody came to help us. Um, got in the back of a pickup truck and rode to the hospital. Um, there was an ambulance there, and they uh, put this, like, I don't know, plastic sleeve on me and blew it up. It was just kind of like a splint, you know, air splint, just to stabilize my arm because it was just dangling. And um, went to the hospital, and that's pretty much, you know, as far as going into surgery, um, that was the last thing I remember from that day. And by then, it was probably 8, 9 o'clock at night. I'm not sure. And I mean, it was people, just a blur. For people who don't know, and I don't know if you briefly mentioned it, your mom didn't make it. She was one of the five people killed in the incident. Yeah. What do you remember feeling about that, and when did you get that news well the next morning um after surgery so it had been monday morning today the 22nd um it was probably i don't know mid-morning i like to get my sleep and i you know i don't come out of anesthesia very well and i remember waking up um in my hospital room by myself well actually my grandma and grandpa mccullough my dad's mom and dad were in my room, and they were crying when I woke up. I looked over at them, and I asked them. I just said, how's, how's Joni? How's Jill? Is she here? No, she's not, but she's going to be okay. How's Dad? And I didn't ask about Mom to them, you know, and I just said, well, what about Mom? And they just started crying, and I just knew it, you know, that she was dead. And they just said, she didn't make it, Randy. And I go, I figured. And I just cried. And, and I had that room until Joni was able to be in my room after she got stabilized enough to be in my room. And then she came in. But I got out. Um like Thursday, maybe Friday. And I think I actually got out the day that they had the funeral for my mom. Were you able to attend it? No, no. They didn't even tell me. The friends of the family that picked me up, I stayed with Joe and Aggie uh, McKimmy. Uh, they're just friends of the family, and they had a house in Tolono. And, or Pasodum, and they picked me up from the hospital and took me to their house, and that was why none of my other family was able to pick me up is because they were at the, well, my sister Jan was at the funeral, and, you know, Jan was not, she's my older sister, and she was not in it, and she had to deal with everything, you know, all the funeral arrangements and, you know, just worrying about us and I can't imagine she had the roughest part of all 
I think. What was your dad's condition? Um, he was in a coma. I don't know. I can't remember if it was like uh, medically induced or whether it was just that he couldn't wake up. But he had head injuries and swelling on the brain and um, just he had had a heart attack prior to that. So, you know, he wasn't the best of health and very high strung, kind of like me. And um, he was just in a coma. I mean, I didn't even get to talk to him. You know, I haven't left the hospital and didn't even get to see him. I did go get to see Jill in her room. They took me to see her, and, you know, I had to get down on the floor to be able to talk to her because she was in, a like, a I don't know what you call it, traction, you know, where they actually flip the bed over, you know, so she's laying on her stomach for a while, and then she's laying on her back for a while, and so that was how I got to talk to Jill and you know, talked about mom being gone and um, just everything happened so fast, you know. I mean, here this was on a Sunday and, you know, get out of the hospital on Friday. And then I went to the, the Fairbury Fair was that week, you know, I was looking forward to the Fairbury Fair, you know, and... Uh, Somebody took me, my sister Jan, uh, took me to the fair uh, in a wheelchair. And then the next day I started school. So <laughs> this time of year just kind of sucks. I hate it. <laughs> I can't believe that. This... I do. I can't. I hate it. I mean, when I took the kids to school, I've got three kids. Uh, shout out to Trev and <laughs> Carly. <laughs> and tanner but uh uh taking them to school it was hard for me i'd cry every year i just hated it because i can remember you know uh, i was going into sixth grade and you know i just got out of the hospital i lose my mom i was a mama's boy you know my dad worked and uh, we depended on our mom. You know, she was very important to our family, and she was gone. And uh, I, prior to that, years prior to that, I mean, I would, the Sunday night before going to school, I'd just cry and just, I want to stay home with you, Mom. I just didn't want to go to school. I didn't care about school. I wanted to spend time with her, so... What do you feel then when your kids go to school and it's the night before? I still feel it today. I feel the feelings that I felt. Um, they don't have a clue. I mean, I've told them why I feel the way I do, but I can't help it. I mean, it's the anxiety of um, knowing what I went through at that particular time. I hated it. Um, going to the fair, I, I, I wanted to go to the fair. It wasn't like I was dragged to the fair, but I have very, um, uncomfortable feelings about it, I guess. 
just because of the time of the year. I mean, it was a tragedy. It happened. You know, I associate the fair with the tornado because it was at that same time. It was made a big impact on me at 11 years old. And then um, just people staring at you, you know, at 11 years old, you're, you know, being pushed around the fair and everybody's coming up to you. And I just, it was just, I was uncomfortable. And then to go to school the next day, just didn't like it. Completely understandable. Who would? Yeah. And in the 70s, this was prior to people knowing not to stare at people in wheelchairs. Did people ask you what happened? No, most of them knew because they were from Fairbury. I mean, it was the Fairbury Fair. It was just friends of mine that would come up. Hey, good to see you, you know. But I just, I was dealing with my own grief, I guess, you know, or I hadn't dealt with it, you know. Um, It's why we do funerals, you know. You do funerals so that you can say goodbye and uh, closure. Now, I'm glad you said that, because for people who don't know, you are in the funeral business. I've had, call it what you will, I don't know, I've seen you plenty of times at funerals in Shinoa and in Fairbury. Did you go into this in some small or large part because of what you missed out on as a child with your mom's funeral? No, I wouldn't say so. Um Rob Duffy at Duffy Pills Memorial Home. Uh, Rob and I were friends from school. We're the same age. We graduated high school together, and he just approached me later in life and just said, have you ever thought about going back to school? And I go, I laughed at him, and I go, to do what? I hated school, you know. I wanted to get out of there so fast, you know. Uh, And he just says, well, I to be a funeral director and I'm like I laughed at him and he just he said I just think you should think about it and I'm I'm, I just laughed and he goes just think about it talk to Jill and get back to me Jill is your wife Jill is my wife yeah and uh went home and told her and she laughed and then she goes you know what I think you'd be pretty good at that and I don't know, it went on maybe a month or so, and he contacted me again, and I just said, I'm kind of thinking about it, and actually then, probably within three or four months, I was in. I was going to Mortuary College. I had to get some general uh, college credits before attending Mortuary College, but um, I was I started working part time while I was going to school to get my funeral director license. Mortuary science is actually a field that I have so much respect for. I've talked to a few young men, believe it or not, who are in that field. And you think about it, you are doing more to make what one of the most tragic and sad days of anyone's life for the people who are still living, you're making it significantly better if I understand mortuary correctly and you work on the bodies of these people and you make them presentable and make them look beautiful. This is the last time anyone's going to see them. And you make it look like they're just sleeping is what people always say. 
you're doing a service that so few people would want to do, and yet it's so incredibly important for the grieving process, for the well-being of so many people who loved this person. That This is what you do, correct? Correct. Thank you for doing it. I've been to a number of funerals, sadly, but I'm so grateful that they were as pleasant as they were. Because if it weren't for you, we either wouldn't have seen them or it would have been a tragic experience to see them again. Yeah. So it's incredibly valuable work, but you don't think that there's any tie, psychologically at least, even if it's deep down? Probably deep down. You know, after he asked me and then uh, he knew that, I mean, there was a time in life where I had actually considered going into the ministry. And he, one of the words he said to me was, uh, I think this is a ministry in itself, Randy. This is something that you, um, there's a lot more to it than what, the average person thinks, you know, embalming, you know, messing with a dead human body. You know, it's not something that, or it's what people think of when they think of a funeral director. They don't think of uh, the planning of the funeral service and just taking care of the family. That's, I, I put my families that I serve almost above my own family, you know. A lot of times I do because I have to. Yes. You Their do needs come. Yeah, you do a great job of it. Thank you. You really do. And it's incredible. You mentioned before we started recording that you worked at Dave's Supermarket. Yeah. Strange as of a turn as this <laughs> is. For a number of years. And you said for some reason... That you owe a lot to these people. Yeah. They were like a family to you. Yeah. How soon after all these events, granted you were 11, so it had to be a while. When did you start working there, and why did you think that was significant? I'm truly curious. Well, uh, on my 16th birthday, I got a call from Kanda Stefan, which is Mark's wife, and heard that I turned 16 that day <laughs> wondered if I'd be interested in a job they needed some carryouts so 16 years old I needed money you know had to pay for my gas I had to pay for my car insurance you know things didn't just get given to me you know I had to work for them and um, so I started there then and worked all the way through high school and Actually, they're 17 years, uh, but they were significant in my life. Uh, They were good Christian family that showed me how to live life, you know. I mean, I saw what they had, and I wanted it. These are the Steffens you're talking about. Correct. The owners of Dave's Supermarket. Great people I know from experience. I've worked with them plenty. Incredible people. Alan, Mark. Vicky, Brian, just very important. Emmy, Dave, Stefan. I mean, they just truly care about their employees. And um, I know they cared about me and maybe still do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 17 years, you said. Yeah. Man. And you th- they cared about – how do you know they cared about you? Would they tell you things no, at just, work? just – uh, I don't know. Any time I needed to talk about 
personal things, spiritual things, anything, they were my friends first and foremost, but they were really more than that. They were, I think they know, but they were spiritual leaders for me. They got me searching for God and what I needed. They directed me, you know, just they showed me something and just not by saying you need to do this, just by living their life. I wanted to be like that. I wanted more for my life than, and I wanted my kids to look at me differently than what I, you know, maybe looked at my dad. You know, I wanted a more spiritual based family. And uh, I don't know, I just, they were incredibly important to my life. And uh, don't think I would be where I am today without them. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I love Dave's. You know what? Now I love them even more. <laughs> They're incredible. How much can you love a supermarket? Well, it's right. not the supermarket itself, although that's great. It's the family behind it. There's a reason this place has been that's around right. for 70 plus years and it's just been getting better and better and everyone travels from miles away to this place. You started working there at 16. 11 to 16, what happened in between there? What was life like? For Pete's sakes, you didn't have your mom around. Your dad, I assume, was disabled at least for quite a while. What did life look like in between those two periods? A little blurry, but I, I do remember when Dad did come home. Jill wasn't home yet, but Dad did come home. So it was just Dad and my younger sister, Joni, and myself. I can remember sitting around the kitchen table at night, uh, getting something to eat, or him trying to think of something to make to eat, because my dad was gone. He was a salesman. He Sometimes he was gone during the week, all week, not home. We didn't know how to interact with him as well. He was tough. He was stern. You know, this was the 70s. Your mom did everything, and the dad worked. And uh, I can remember him just crying, just saying, it should have been me. It should have been me. I wish it was me instead of her. Yeah. And we kind of felt that way, too. And we did. I mean, she did a lot. I love my dad, but mom was the one who special. raised you. Yeah. Yeah. I still have people today come up to me and just say how, what an impact she made on their life, you know, and it, as she was just my mom. I don't know what she was like, you know. I remember what she looked like. Um, how she sounded, the way she laughed. She had false teeth at a young age, and she would take her teeth out and chase us around the house and bite at us. And just, she was hilarious. She was funny. She was just loving. Um, she was great. God rest your soul. She sounds like a wonderful woman. Yeah. Wow. In the 70s, it was something like 
less than 5% I know of college students when asked if they would if they believed that counseling or therapy would be beneficial for them less than 5% said yes today within the last few years they've ran that same study a number of times and they find that over 90% of college students will say that they believe therapy or counseling would be beneficial for them in their mental health yeah you've been through perhaps the most traumatic series of events of anyone I know have you considered at least <laughs> therapy have you have you gone to have you talked to someone I know yeah. Stefan's were profound in your emotional and spiritual and mental well-being have you ever seen yeah someone yeah okay. there's been you know through the years different events or uh, problems or uh, issues with my life that I've never been shy about talking to somebody. I've never turned away somebody saying, you know, I'll help you. Um, like Jill, I've always chose to talk about the tornado and losing mom. I feel uh, the more I talk about it, that's my therapy. You know, I'm dealing with it. I'm grieving and I'm letting people know how I feel about it. Um, I do feel in the 70s, I know, I, look at all the things on the news, you know, the hurricanes and uh, tornadoes or floods and, you know, the Red Cross is there or, you know, food is there for people, you know, just the support that our nation has for tragedies, you know, here we went through a tragedy, not anybody ever reached out never you know like red cross anybody said do you need anything can we help in any way you know would you want to talk to this counselor i know it's the 70s and that's just the way it was the stigma was so different yeah i guess Did you say i don't no know i mean then? i'm just thinking in my head though it's like look at what we do now had i had that maybe I wouldn't be as screwed up as I am today. You know? Oh, well, I think you're doing pretty well, all things considered. Holy smokes. I've got my issues. Right. Oh, sure. I didn't mean to come off like that. No, no, I do. Not, I no, just, you're... I do. I've just, um, extreme anxiety about, you know, the next bad thing is right around the corner. I'm just waiting for it. Right. I hate to. Sound like a Debbie Downer, but everybody says, what's the worst thing that can happen, Randy? What's the worst thing? And I'm like, dude, I know. The worst thing, you know, is right around the corner. I don't know. I just feel that way. It's got to be so crazy for you because you weren't expecting anything. And then the worst thing imaginable could happen. Or that could happen did happen. So now, whenever you're you don't expect anything, you know what still could happen, despite whether or not you're expecting it. What that must do for your anxiety, that event, it ah, that's tough, man. Any time that any kind of important decision is needs to be made or. Uh, 
anything, I'm always looking at it and analyzing it, saying, now, this is the worst thing that could happen, you know, like preparing myself. I prepare myself for that natural disaster every event that I go through. I'm telling myself, you know, I, I, I try to prepare myself, you know, like going to mortuary college. What if I fail? What if I don't make it? What if I screw up? What if I can't do this? You know, what am I going to do? You know, I prepare myself. So therefore, I put that pressure. People don't know it. I put the pressure on myself, you know. I, the fear of failure causes you to succeed. I feel, you know, so I've just got that burning in the back of me saying, I can't screw up. I can't screw up. Um, I was second in my class at Mortuary College. You know, I just, I was driven to succeed because I did not want to fail. Yeah, well, it's, it's a sad reality. I listened to this podcast by a neurologist and ophthalmologist at Stanford, and he has incredible guests on, experts in their field. One of them, a recent episode was with a, a conversation with someone who was a world-leading expert on motivation and what exactly it takes to achieve a goal or have success, and they found much to a lot of people's sadness, I guess, is more than visualizing the best possible outcome and striving for that, what causes success more often more consistently is imagining the worst possible outcome yeah. and that's what it's like that makes sense neurologically as far as your psychology goes if your brain <laughs> your brain works harder to avoid a horrible thing if if there's a dog chasing you you're gonna run till you're dead if it's yeah. a rabid dog it's gonna get you rather than you'll run faster then and for longer then than if there was a prize at the end you had to just run your that's fastest right. and beat people to get it you run away from bad things much more effectively than you run towards good things. Yeah. That's just the way that that's how we've evolved as human beings is. Well, that's not true. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's totally. sad reality kind yes. of. Yes. But I guess you can rejoice a little bit and look what look at the fruits of that. Yeah. Graduating second in your class. Yeah. Huh. But it comes at a cost. Yeah. Nobody knows the work that I put in, you know. I have to work hard, you know. I have to – I just don't want to fail, so. And you have to suffer through an awful lot of anxiety. Yeah, I do. Still do. Hmm. A lot of control, you know. I just want to know uh, where everybody's at. I just know that in any particular situation, something can go wrong. You know, there's been a, numerous things that have happened in my life. Hmm. Tragedies. You mentioned the thing about your wife. Yeah. Would you care to mention yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, I think it was like eight years ago. Forgive me, Jill. I'm not positive. Eight to ten years ago. I'm not real good at the dates thing. Probably should get more anxious about that. <laughs> I think you're good. You're... Your anxious levels might be good enough. But uh, uh, Jill and I were having some problems in our marriage. And uh, that's another thing. I mean, I just, uh, 
a young age, we were left alone, so um, I grew up uh, pretty uh, independent. My sister and I did, Joni, and we had a lot of freedom. Um, I ended up getting my girlfriend pregnant the summer that I graduated. In 1984, I graduated, and by November, I was getting married. Mm. (laughs) And I had no plans to get married. Um, Just, I knew she was the one. She was, and I do believe, people will say, no, Randy, that's not true, but I have a tremendous faith uh, in God, and... Uh, regardless, I just think that he wanted me to be with my wife. And uh, maybe the only way that I was going to do that is for her to end up pregnant. I don't know. Anyway, we got married. Um, I've got three kids. Trevin lives in February. Carly's married to Andrew Gerber in Lexington. And then Tanner's married to Melissa. Um they live in February, too. But um, been married for 38 years. Um, almost as old as I am. Uh, wait, who's been married 38 <laughs> Me. years? You. Okay, I was like, <laughs> I, said, I thought you I'm said not even daughter. 38. <laughs> That's right. Wait, so if you were born in, if you were 11 and 77. No, I'm 56. Right, 56, okay, there we go. Yeah. No, you're a long, young-looking guy. Don't majority get, don't of my life, I've been married. Man, well, you look great, But though. I love my wife, Anna. So we were having some issues uh, back to that, and... Um, Uh, actually, she said she was going to be moving out. So I left and went to some friend's house and just was talking to him and working through. And a lot of it is because of my control, my anxiousness, my, you know, anxiety. And uh, so she said she was going to be leaving, and I just I couldn't deal with that. And... Uh, Came back home after visiting with my friends for a while, and she was not at home. And I called her cell phone, and I couldn't find her, but she did end up calling me back. And she was at a friend's house, and she just said she didn't feel good and that she was laying on this friend's couch. And she says, I just don't feel right. And I go, I go. What's the matter? And she says, oh, My neck hurts. My back hurts. I got a headache. Terrible headache. I can't get off the couch. And she says, Would you take me to the chiropractor? Take me to Scott Nowak's. And I'm like, It's Saturday afternoon. He's not there. And I was almost kind of mad. I thought she was just playing with me or something. And I ended up going down to the friend's house and and. Getting into the house, the friend wasn't there, but Jill was laying on her couch and got her up and put her in the car. And I just said, we're going to go to the emergency room. So I took her to the emergency room in Pontiac and they got her in and got her situated and did a bunch of tests. And 
CT scans and all this, and and uh, came back into the room not too long after that, and got down beside my wife, this doctor did, and said, ma'am, we've got a helicopter coming. Um, you've got a leaking brain aneurysm. And I'm like, hello, I'm here. You know, she he wasn't talking to me. He was talking to her. And um, I don't know why that was. You know, he just didn't directing didn't direct things to me and so in a matter of minutes here another tragedy you know I hear the words aneurysm you know the only time I ever heard aneurysm is when somebody dies so um, next thing you know there's a helicopter there and they're taking her to St. Francis in Peoria not knowing what to do you know I just was able to get to the hospital in time and they had to stabilize her first get her blood pressure down she had leaking aneurysm but they when they scanned her they actually found another one so she had two of them one in her frontal lobe and one in her occipital which is in the back and uh the doctor was uh dr jeff Kloffenstein over in Peoria, and he came and talked to us and said that he was going to have to go in and do physical surgery. There's things that they can do with aneurysms where they can put, like, little stints in them or little, uh, 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 what do they call them, clips now? I'm not sure. Anyway, just said that Jill wasn't a candidate due to... Well, the way that this specific uh, aneurysm looked, they had to physically go in there and do that, which meant opening up the side of her head and going in there and putting these clips on these aneurysms. Go into her brain, yeah. saw off a quarter of her top of her skull, go in there, and then go into the brain yeah. with the most delicate of utensils and just open that (laughs) clip a little blood vessel i mean it's it's amazing it's the it's our it's what we depend on our you know spinal cord and brain is just what controlled us you know and i knew that you know i've seen the inside of a skull you know i know how delicate these vessels are and I just could not even imagine somebody cutting the side of somebody's head and going in there and doing that and having that person come back and be normal or functioning, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, she could be in a nursing home, never recover. But, I mean, it was 16 days of being in intensive care, uh, neurology, over at St. Francis, I mean, I stayed there nonstop. Didn't go home. And uh, she gradually turned it around, and she's 100%, I say. No way, oh, really? She's, yeah. Wow. She struggles with things, and she feels, I don't know, it's just 
there's some things, just minor things, but not enough for anybody to know, but her best friend, me, you know? Does it do anything for you to, when you were 11 years old, to be in a situation where things went from bad to worse, to now, much later in life, to have things look like they're about to go bad to worse yet again, but instead, this time, to go up. Does that do anything for you? I'm very thankful. Very thankful. I mean, like I said, I've got a tremendous faith. Um, uh, believe in God and love God. Um Nothing is by accident. I just feel like God has just always been there. It's just that it took a while for me to see it, you know, and appreciate. And being a Christian is a growing experience. It's not like, for some people, it is an overnight change and people just um, stop being who they were and become somebody else. Well... God wants me to be who I am. I feel like I can reach more people and lead more people just being who I am and loving on people. Uh, I can reach more people and build the kingdom that way better than me being some carbon copy of somebody else, you know? People will hear this. It's so profound that you have such a faith like you do despite the tragedy you've lived through. Now, some people will hear this and be inspired, but others will be angered in a way and want to challenge you with this. And I apologize, this is kind of a deep question here, but how do you square it that you believe in an all-loving and merciful God who has his hand in just about everything in your life? How did he allow for the death of your family members in yeah. the obstruction of your entire life at such a young age when you were innocent. Don't get me wrong. I mean, when I was 12, 13, I thought this God that everybody, I can remember going to a Bible school and, you know, like in the summer, you know, you have the vacation Bible school and the teachers saying how God loves us and all this stuff and, you know, he, you know, and how everybody says, well, it was just your mom's time to go. And I'm like, you're full of crap. You're full of crap. I don't see a God that says, today's the day. Carolyn, you're dying, you know. And, in and this you're way. ruining, I'm ruining Randy and Joni and Jill and Stan and Jan's life. You know, I'm taking away something from them. It wasn't that. I just don't believe it. I don't see a God doing that. You know, we are given choices. We made the choice to go down there that day, uh, that weekend, uh, to be there at that particular time. We made the choice, you know. There was a lot of times where I would be mad at God. I would curse and, you know, if you're so great how could you do this, you know? I went through it with Jill even when the aneurysm, I just thought, this is it, you know? And I was pretty strong in my faith, but I was questioning, 
you know, I just kept, I don't know, just dug down deep. And I can remember like the night before her surgery, just singing by her bed. You know, she was out of it, but singing and just praising God, you know. And I just felt a peace, like everything was going to be okay. Whoa. The Holy Spirit must truly be inside of you. It sounds like Job and the is it Job or is it Job? <laughs> yeah. Job. Job. I don't Job. Know. The Old Testament. Job, okay. In the Old Testament, when the devil's just tormenting him, making his life absolutely horrible, test after test, boils, your work your everything you love is gone. And his friends are like, Job. Uh, you must have offended God after they yeah. hang out for a week and don't talk. They're like, we've had time to think. You must have offended God. What'd you do? And he said, get out of here. Leave me alone. He says, I will not. And he says he won't curse God, and he won't, and that's all the devil wants him to do. And sure enough, things get better, weirdly enough, and there's something to be learned in that story. But I think there might be... I don't know what I want to say. There's something that feels off about God makes everything happen. Like every, mm-hmm. if it, we have free will, right? If I got up and I don't know, I've always said if I got up and punched my old roommate Kyle in the face, is that God's plan? No, I have free will. Yeah, Let's not you forget. made the choice. God has a desire for us, perhaps, but it's our decisions that ultimately get us there or here or somewhere completely different. Our free will is an important thing that we can't just, you know, put to the side when we say things like everything's according to God's plan. But also, I'm Catholic, and we listen to, or we like to look at what the saints say. And a lot of these saints will say things like, if we knew the glory of heaven, and we believe in purgatory, right? And there's something to be said about Protestants who don't believe in purgatory and saying, well, you can still become holy through your suffering— if we knew the glory of heaven, if we were there right now, we'd look back at our earthly lives and almost throw ourselves into as much suffering as we possibly could because it just helps us en route to get to heaven. And you could almost imagine, and I hope this isn't offensive, but like if your mom were is in heaven, as I assume she is, she's fine. Yeah. And she'd almost look back at, yeah, it was a tragic day, but what's it matter in the grand scheme of things? I'm in heaven with God for eternity and I'm ultimately peaceful and there's no suffering there so she doesn't right. even realize that i'm suffering right you know right. or at least she's not suffering knowing it because exactly. she knows how minuscule otherwise it wouldn't be heaven right that's right that's right it's the way i look at it anyway is that how you look at it mm-hmm. hmm. yeah i mean there's been mo- i mean my sister Joni, she had toxic shock syndrome she just all of a sudden on a sunday she got real sick and uh, got a call from her boyfriend at the time and said that she's taken her to the hospital. And sure enough, uh, she had uh, infection and turned into sepsis. And she, her kidneys stopped functioning. Um, then they told us that she had, in fact, toxic shock syndrome and that she had an IUD in her and. She was just massive infection in her, and they were going to go in and do surgery on her and remove that and try to remove all the infection. And, 
you know, along with that, they're pumping them full of fluid to flush and get the kidneys working, trying to do dialysis, cleaning, you know, just trying to stop the infection and get it out of her. And, you know, I'm a funeral director at that time, a new funeral director, five years into it probably. So, I mean, I knew what I was doing, but it takes years. I've been doing it 21 years, and it just takes years of uh, experience to really be good at what you're doing. And she was beyond recognition anymore. You know, I knew what they were doing. Talked to the doctor that was going to be the, doing the surgery prior to, and I just said, listen. I took him off, and I just said, is this a glorified autopsy for you? I just said, is she, she's basically dead, you know, and you're going to do this. You, you want to know what's killing her, so you're going in there and trying to get this out of her, but... Is this just basically an autopsy that you're doing right now, and then she's going to die on the table? It's just for your own satisfaction that you're doing this. You said this, yeah, because I just—I'm a funeral director. I know what's going on, you know. And he just—he looked at me kind of with bright eyes, you know, and he just couldn't believe I even asked him. But he just said, "I—I I understand what you're saying," but she, he says. I believe I can help her. This is the only chance we have. So they did the surgery, and she's good today. She's Jeez. good today. So, I mean, I have seen miracles, and I believe they're miracles. I do. I'm confident they're miracles. I mean, I'm not saying the bad things aren't going to happen to me again. They are. I mean, I know they are. Uh I'd rather they didn't, but um, I've had enough in my life. And I I do every situation that I go in or every tragedy that happens in my life, I just think, how much more can I handle, you know? He doesn't give you any more than you can handle, you know? If you weren't so tough, maybe he wouldn't give you so much. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Just... I just, uh, I don't know. I do. I, it's totally made my, my faith and belief in God that much more to see those two miracles. You know, my wife um, couldn't imagine life without Jill. She's everything. That's beautiful. Randy, we're getting towards the end of this conversation I almost think I know the answer to this question, but just to wrap it up, who do you credit the most to helping you through all of the baggage, all of the new traumas, traumas, the tragedies, I mean, that you've had in your life? Who's been there for you most and contributed to your, maybe just your continuation straight up and then also your just quality of life who's contributed to that oh man that's a tough one um fairberry you know i do feel um, um 
almost like uh, after the tornado, you know, the support from our community, uh, Fairbury, Forest, Chatsworth, Shinoa, um, uh, overwhelming, you know, I mean, people would come in and ask us if they, you know, can we bring food or for, you know, like a week after everybody got out of the hospital. I don't know. Throughout the years, any time anything's ever happened, you know, our church family, you know, um, the people of our community, you know, it doesn't, they don't even have to be Christians. They're just good people that love us you know, that wanted to help in some way. You know, everybody wants to help. And I, it's why I stayed in a small community. You know, I don't want to live in Chicago where you don't even know your neighbors. You know, I want, it's so important, you know, when somebody dies and going through a visitation and how many people come to share their love to the family, for that person or uh, just them, you know? I mean, it's so important. After a visitation, families just are like, oh, man, that was just so neat, so special to know, you know, you know, stories about your dad that you didn't know or, you know, somebody will come through that just totally surprised you. I know I'm probably getting off track, but I do oh. feel like Fairbury, you know, our community, our small community, I – owe a lot to um in some small way i feel like i you know in funeral service i get to give back you know i get to help those families you know and i wouldn't wouldn't want to do it anywhere else but my home you know i'm able to serve those families that i know and love uh i want to be the one to help them you know, they're allowing me in their world three or four days to help them. You know, they're allowing me into their circle, you know. I don't know. It's it's mind-blowing. It really means a lot. And it, it does make me feel better about who I am and uh, helps me to forget about poor me. You know, <laughs> feeling sorry for myself, you know, but knowing that uh, I, not too many people can say, I know how you feel, you know, or I, I've been where you're at, you know, in funeral Virtually service. Virtually no you one know, for you. Oh, oh. You know, you know losing someone, you know, I mean, right. I've lost. I've hmm. experienced tragic death. I've experienced just a just a regular death too, you know. It's loss. It's hard either way, you know. But I don't know. I don't know. Randy McCullough getting lost. Your life is extraordinary. It's really like a movie. I can't <laughs> believe it. There's so much there. It's almost overwhelming, and that's just me saying that. And I've only listened to it. I can't imagine living through it, but you're a strong, strong man with a fantastic heart. It's incredible, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your stories, 
sharing your incredible insights, your faith. You've promoted so many things. The people of Fairbury, the town of Fairbury, Dave's supermarket, the funeral home. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and just thank you for coming on to my show. Thank you. I would like to just say thank you to um, uh, Rob Duffy, uh, Debbie Duffy, Janelle Hoffman. It's who I work with. They're funeral directors at Duffy Pills, but um, doing what we do, we have to lean on somebody. You know, I mean, there's times when it gets real hard, but uh, they've been very supportive and very helpful to me. Uh, I appreciate them very much. Um, they are my family too, uh, but without my family and friends, I'd be nothing. Wow. You've got great people in your life then, fair yeah. to say. All right. Randy, thank you so much, and thank you everyone for watching and listening. Until next Sunday. God bless and have a great week. That was Randy McCullough.